Welcome to episode three of Islington Mill and. Islington Mill and is a podcast series about the life, times, people, and culture of one of the UK's most beloved artist-led creative centres, Salford's Islington Mill. For episode three, I am joined by a very special guest, someone who I didn't have the chance to interview over the course of the Islington Mill is Queer podcasts, but that I made a special request to interview for Islington Mill and, especially as she did feature in episode two of Islington Mill and, which was part two of Modelling Queer Utopias, in which I spoke to all four members of the Islington Mill Creative Board. That would be Bill Campbell, his partner Mari Carlin, Rachel Goodyear, and today's guest, Rivka Rubin. We've been planning a one-to-one interview with Rivka for quite a while now, and I'm not going to do a very long intro to today's show, just to tell you that the topic is upwording, which is Rivka's particular skill, and I will let her tell you the listeners what exactly upwording is let's hand it back now to myself with today's guest Rivka Rubin Rivka Rubin welcome to episode three of Islington Mill and today we're here to talk about um a topic uh, a subject how would you just dis- describe upwording what is upwording so yeah, thank you, uh, Niall. It's uh, a topic, a subject, I'd say it's a practice. Our invitation is to think of upwording as a practice, something that you engage in, that you can practice and you can bring into your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read this out a little bit. Okay, I yeah, think sure. it's quite well written. Mm-hmm. It's, it's written. And um, so uh, we believe, and there is a, a growing we, that upwording is an essential element in the dismantling of oppressive systems. Okay. There's been quite a lot of... There's focus now on dismantling. Yeah. Superiority. Yeah. Oppression. Mm -hmm. Power over. Yes. Control. Mm -hmm. Supremacy, Mm -hmm. etc. And I'd see upwording very much as one of the fibres, as a very crucial, essential, central fibre. In the word of upwording, you already can hear it's around words. Mm-hmm. It's about vocabulary yeah. and concepts and beliefs that drive that. So what the practice of upwording does is invites us to become aware of linguistic tools that are constructed to enable hierarchies mm-hmm. of superiority and authoritarianism, be that patriarchy, white supremacy, and many more. Mm-hmm which have become such habitual components in our everyday communication that we mostly don't even notice. Mm-hmm. So upwording encourages us to notice those through the words we use when we speak with ourselves, mm-hmm. with others, when we think about ourselves, think about others. Mm-hmm. And to co-create environments that are free from coercion and free from stress and free from anxiety and where our microcosm impacts and reflects what we would love to see happening throughout the world. Cool. Is there a straightforward example that you could share with us that displays how hierarchies of oppression are used through language? Yeah. Let's say, let's start with... um, Control. Mm-hmm. Um, control is a, is is a form is 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 a necess- 
Control is a necessary element of domination. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do you exercise control? Mm -hmm. how do you, you can do it through force. You can use physical force to control a person, mm -hmm. an animal, a living yeah. being, by physically restraining or holding down. Mm -hmm. Now, physical force isn't enough alone. Because yeah. if there was only physical force and the only way I can control you is one, I want to be stronger, mm -hmm. more able, more capable to do that. And I can't control each person through a physical force. So I require something else. Mm -hmm. So power, that kind of power requires vocabulary. Based on the belief that actually control is crucial, i.e. to keep us safe, mm -hmm. to have order in mm -hmm. the world etc etc so when we then go into the vocabulary what words can i use in order to control others and myself mm -hmm. must i must do this you must do that mm -hmm. we have to do it this way mm -hmm. we have to do it now mm -hmm. you should do they should do or even we should have done okay do it now. Do it now. And yes, I can see the implications of power in those statements. How, through the lens of upwording, how do you change that? Particularly something like, you must do that now, for instance. Okay. So how you change that is actually, first of all, to notice that those words have just come out of my head and out of my mouth. And actually ask, mm -hmm. do I have to do this? Do we have to? Do we need to do that? Do you have to? Now, I would say as a premise, and that may be a little challenging to the reader, to you, is there anything we have to do? Okay, yeah. And if I was to say, yes, there is something that we have to do. For example? For example... Just to take an example out, if I noticed that something was smouldering in the corner, I would say we have to leave right now. There's a fire. You could say we have to leave right now. Mm -hmm. It still doesn't mean I have to leave. I may choose to stay. Yes. You may choose to stay. Mm -hmm. I might choose instead to go, actually, I can deal with that fire. I'm going to put a blanket on it or I've got some water, whatever. I've got a fire extinguisher. Mm -hmm. So I have a number of choices. But you'll certainly, in an emergency, go, leave. Mm -hmm. Now, at that moment, that kind of a demand or that order is out of an emergency and will be heard as such because the intention is to keep me safe. Yes. So you've gone straight for, an, it's really lovely, for yeah. an exception where yeah. the intention is not to coerce me into something. The extension is actually to keep me safe. Yes. So, of course, I will stop you and probably even quite violently or physically not mm -hmm. violent, but physically, from mm -hmm. running out on the road if I see a car coming at you sure. having or a child. Yeah. That is not a coercion. Yes. That is not oppression, and that is not... Yeah. Um, yeah. But, okay, here's another example. I just was smoking a cigarette there before we started the interview. You must not smoke near me or something. Or yeah. You, yeah. You mustn't smoke. You shouldn't smoke. Yeah. Etc. Exactly. How effective is it when you're being told you shouldn't smoke, you mustn't smoke, don't smoke? Not very. <laughs> at all um it depends on the context but i think 
now that I'm thinking about this off the top of my head, I also think there's a context of the relationship with the person who's saying it to you. Like my mother smokes, and she would always say, you shouldn't smoke because I smoke and I, you shouldn't take it up. And up to a certain point in my life, I think I accepted that. And then when I hit a teenager, I was like, oh, I want to try what, what the smoking thing is like. And that's the point when it stopped making, having the impact that it should have had. So there's a lot going on there, which is actually yeah. that in the end, the should is not effective. It is for a, for a little while, mm -hmm. probably because of also the age and the implications and the consequences that could happen if you were found smoking mm -hmm. for many people. Mm -hmm. But actually it becomes almost the opposite. That example of um, being told by somebody what you should do, mm -hmm. um, the sort of the added thing that the must, which is a direct order mm -hmm. and often comes with us just refusing to do it because don't tell me what to do. Yes. The should as an added thing, which is a moralistic high ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You should mm -hmm. not do that or you should do more of that. Yeah. It's a really superior position. Yeah. From me, in this case, as the speaker telling you what you should do or not do or should have done, mm -hmm. of knowing what is good for you, the right and wrong way of being and living. And therefore, it gets even more rejection. It's more subtle because it's a hypothetical demand that is potentially more open for a no mm. because it has that moralistic overtone to it. Mm -hmm. It has even more potential to be ineffective. Mm -hmm. Yes, we start off on it because it's sold as should. It's good for me. It's good for me if I do more running, even if I tell myself. Mm. I let it go because I actually haven't decided to do it so it is still an externalized diktat mm -hmm. it is an externalized piece of advice that i haven't even asked for mm -hmm. should is very much advice mm. must is very much a demand or a mm -hmm. command mm -hmm. yeah so but they're external until i go i want to i will do i'm prepared to i choose to i'd love to i can't wait to mm. i am going to mm -hmm. even just i'm going to at that moment i internalize that would be upwording. Okay. I have made it internal. I own it. I take responsibility for it. Um, yeah, so that's around the shirt. And... Um, well, I mean, we've just come out of this... Obviously, we're two years after, into, I don't know, where we stand in terms of the pandemic and where it's at now. People are still getting COVID, but it doesn't seem to be as lethal as it was two years ago. Um but that was a period of time, and it still kind of is to an extent, but not maybe as bad as it was two years ago, where um, people in positions of authority were using very direct commanding statements telling the population what we should and have to be doing. How, how did you see that from the point of view of upwording? How did you see the kind of societal reaction, especially people in positions of authority, to trying to govern a population because it seems very clear to me as it was happening that certainly at the most clearest at any point in my life that I've seen people in positions of authority giving these demanding, commanding statements to the population and quite a large proportion of the population actively going, no, I'm not going to do that. Exactly. It's in your question. It's what you've just said. People are were reacting. Mm. Now, you could also say the government 
and the health authorities were reacting and we could go out of fear and often when we feel afraid for somebody else like you gave an earlier example about the the fire or gave an example yeah. of running on the road yeah i will tell you what to do because at that moment i'm afraid for your life so yeah. We, we unfortunately revert to telling people and trying therefore to really coerce and force people to do something that we believe, let's say at that moment government health authorities believe is the way to go in order to keep people safe. Mm -hmm. Now there's an argument around whether that was the only way or the, or, or the best way and people will question whether that was the, the, the route to take. Um, what you were talking about, people were reacting by not doing it, is actually to the language used, not the content. Okay. Um, I don't want them to tell me to wear masks. I don't want to be told what to do. Mm. Who are they to tell me? Mm -hmm. So people are really felt mm. that that um, domination, that force, that coercion through the words of must, and we're mm. rebelling against the must. Yes. Yeah. Okay, can I give, well, I'll give you another example then, um, kind of slightly pandemic related, but for instance, say if you're in a coupling or you're in a relationship and you and your partner have perhaps over the course of pandemic not been getting as much exercise as you would have been doing previously because we're, our access to things are limited and then a year into it you realise that you're a bit heavier than you were before and you think we must eat more healthily or we should get more exercise. Mm. How would you reframe that? So you might have done this or imagine you would have done it. How effective is that? We must eat more healthily. We should do more exercise. Yeah, I mean, not very. <laughs> okay. And I would say the not very is probably two things. One, the very words you chose are demotivating. Mm. But the should, you're actually employing this moral or moral high ground over yourself. Mm -hmm. And there's a little voice that kicks back that we might not even be aware of going, well, don't tell me what I should do. Who are you? Even in the self-talk. Yeah. Um, or, well, I know that. So why are you telling me I should do? I'm already aware of it. Mm. Because there's an implication of wrongness or stupidity in the should. Yes. And yeah, I need course. to, I'm going to tell you yeah. because you don't already know yeah. what you should do. And it's like, especially if it comes from someone else and the must as well, again, it will be demotivating. Now, the message itself may be one that is crucial and important. And again, I would say the moment you then go, okay, I hear myself saying I must, I should, or we, we must, we should do more or less of this. Do we want to? Actually, we do want to. Mm. That's already a step into a decision ownership. Okay, how do we want to do it? How would we like to do this? Mm. And how would we enjoy doing this? Mm -hmm. More exercise and different food. Then we start looking at elements that have become appealing mm -hmm. rather than getting away from something or losing something i.e. losing weight, is not very motivating. Yeah. But gaining more health, because I choose to, I don't know, f mm. uh, feel, uh, for instance, for me, um, when I have a certain weight, I have less back problems. Mm -hmm. I like having my back free and not in pain. Mm -hmm. So I'm moving to actually having pain-free back. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay. Dialing it back, um, we've kind of, I think that this is a really good clear practical example of what upwarding is i think going through those examples there is really that's made a lot of sense to me um it's about yeah kind of um noticing and being cognizant of the systems of control that are already in place in language and how to flip those systems of control i assume without negating the original potential message mm. of 
something like public health, public safety, personal health and personal safety, because those things are valid and important. Um, so here's a big question. Where did upwording come from? And I want to go to that question. I just want to ha get back just a sure. little bit with a little yeah, bit yeah. more stuff, which is that the idea of the orders and the control domination is... Uh, specifically with the demands and the commands, is one element of a number. Mm -hmm. So we've just taken the must and the have tos and the should do's, the unasked for advice and so on. Sure. And also how that can, and I want to talk a little bit later about how we are using that, Bill and Mara and Rachel and myself, uh, in the way we are communicating. So we can go back to that. And I just want to say there are more. There's a whole cause, effect and blame. There's a whole idea of labeling. There's mm. a whole thing mm -hmm. of diagnosing and analyzing and creating limitations and division. Mm. So upwording, I would say, has as a sort of big grouping four or five elements and then some additional ones. Okay. So just to put it into practice. And, and yeah. yeah, I really like hearing back how you've just said that, which is, becoming aware of the words we use, mm. which are then, what, what, what is going on there, we can ask, because they are the manifestations, the words are just manifestations mm -hmm. um, of um, things that we may notice are in place, like cause effect, mm. orders, commands. Mm -hmm. And then we can, if we choose to create a shift to choice yes. rather than force. Yes to curiosity rather than being furious. It's another element. Yeah. And when we make that choice, then we can use the words that go with it. So like we said before, instead of I have to, I choose to, I want to, I'm willing to, I'm prepared to, I'd love mm. to, I can't wait to. Yeah. I am going mm. to. So where does upwording come from? Yes. Okay, so upwording has its roots, I would say most strongly in nonviolent communication. Okay. Um, which was something that was initiated, created by Marshall Rosenberg, who is no longer with us as of just a few years back, who I trained with. Um, and it's very much based on a real understanding of basic human needs, taken from Maslow's list mm -hmm. of hierarchy of needs, without the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Still the same, pretty much the same human needs. And mm. looking at feelings as manifestations of met or unmet needs and then also looking at language that might be either helpful or hindering, mm -hmm. motivating or demotivating, limiting or liberating in mm. my dialogue with you or myself. Mm -hmm. So upwording I would say is literally a development of, an extension of that focuses particularly on the language and communication to enrich that communication between us Mm -hmm. and to liberate it mm -hmm. and like we've just seen if I make a request to myself or to you it is much more likely to be met mm -hmm. with you wishing and us wishing to do it than if I make a demand on you yeah yes yeah I completely understand that that seems very straightforward kind of sound psychology um is uprooting is a practice is it also a discipline is it something that you can go and study how did you personally come to to be involved in upwording? Okay, so I go for the last bit first. Okay. So actually upwording as a practice, as a word, as a something to engage with, some people call it a movement, mm. uh, came about in 2016 Okay. in collaboration with my... Very new then, still very new. Yeah, five, six years six now. Six years now. Yeah, um, with, uh, in collaboration with my colleague Charles Lauder. Mm-hmm who is a freelance consultant and um, 
The birth was in 2016, uh, a moment when we just sat, actually was in the car, and I was thinking, okay, what do you think? Is there something useful in having a practice that specifically invites us to notice the words that we use that are inadvertently upholding the very authoritarian oppressive systems mm. that an increasing number of people are wishing to dismantle? Mm. Because I've noticed that we are dismantling them with the same tools. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. That upkeep the master's house, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so 2016, and then with some, with some playing around with what are the elements um, and how can we present it, out of it came a first upwarding introduction in the form of a PowerPoint with images and... Uh, and exercises which have now developed and mm -hmm. have had a number of iterations and then myself and now Charles and various other people have started to disseminate that mm -hmm. well I've been doing it now for the last well since 2017 really mm -hmm. um, in this country widely in Europe uh, also with NGOs that I work with in South Africa and in Swaziland and Colombia and Israel and various other places, mm -hmm. um, reaching probably by now around 10,000 people who have reached others. Mm -hmm. So that's through introductions of upwording and also the other training that I deliver as a, if you like, um, trainer, coach, mediator, moderator and trainer of trainers, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. um, Upwording has, is an integral element to all those approaches. Mm -hmm. When I work with, um, and I'll just finish there in a minute, my, the main work is working with culture, organizations in the cultural sector and NGO sector mainly, and that can be big organizations and tiny little groups and teams mm -hmm. who wish to uh, improve their communication, develop their communications with, with one another okay. to have really rich, satisfying workplaces. Mm -hmm. How did you become involved with Islington Mill then? How was, how has upwarding become so important to Islington Mill but also how have you? Okay yeah how has how's upwarding actually yeah become important to the mill to us? Um, right I'd say that starting point is a joint interest in not exercising power over people. Mm -hmm. Any form of power over anybody at any time and that includes in moments when actually you kind of by habit want to mm -hmm. make people do things and we definitely don't ever want to make people do things yeah. with any form of coercion including each other so uh, the first point was really for us to see what happens if we really notice and let go of all language that is coercive, mm -hmm. divisive and limiting, mm -hmm. um, labelling, polarised, yeah. superior, mm -hmm. and replace it with language that is always about describing, inviting, mm -hmm. asking, so people are, all of us, communicate with each other, always out of a real conscious choice. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that everything we do, we really love to do, because there's things that aren't that exciting mm. and can be pretty hard work and mm -hmm. also quite, you know, stretches. They are nevertheless always out of a conscious choice of being willing to do, like I said before. So we are very, very um, rigorous mm -hmm. um, in 
assuring that we don't fall into musts and have tos because mm. I feel certainly I can say I feel that every time I use the word must or should and give it by etc., uh, I am upholding a mm. vocabulary that belongs to systems of superiority and supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to, which of course, with the exception that we had, I think, a little bit earlier, where um, it is the intention that drives it. Mm. If your intention is to keep me safe and you go, get out the way, mm-hmm. and it is an order demand, mm-hmm. it is done by an intention to keep me safe. Equally, yeah. I must say to you, I must, no. Equally, I might say to you, that was just a slip, um, <laughs> and not a Freudian one. Um, uh, I've, seen a fi- I've seen this film. What, what, what is it? And I've still not seen everything, everywhere, everything, all everywhere, once. all at once. And people have said, good, you must see it. Mm. Now, I hear that as an invitation mm. like it was so I really liked it so mm-hmm. much that I really want you to see you must see it that's said in the spirit of an intention of invite invitation it yeah. is not you must see this film mm. because it'll be good for you mm-hmm. yeah. that kind of thing yeah so we're very we're very rigorous with the language you use and it's like a friend of mine said a few years ago when I was when we were speaking about upwording at the beginning she said yeah and I know all this because of course it's nothing new Mm. that we're proposing it's already there we already know mm. and she said but I'm really sloppy with it mm. and I think it's time for us not to be sloppy yeah to make it a practice to make it a practice exactly yeah. and that is also not about I must replace all my musts mm-hmm. I should never say should it is not <laughs> that that becomes again coercive and mm-hmm. policing it's about noticing it's an invitation to notice and go Oh, okay. What I'm actually doing here to myself and with each other. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. So we don't want to make anybody do anything. Yeah. Just I'm going to sidetrack this a little bit because I've realised that um, when I was doing the previous podcast, Islington Mill is queer, which was about documenting the history of the mill as well. One question that I always ask interviewees was. Do you remember the first time you came to Islington Mill? Do you remember the first time well, you came to Islington How did you discover Islington Mill, this place? So the first time that I came was when there was a an event mm-hmm. throughout. It felt like the whole mill. I think it was a number of floors, which was the TV series that I was one of the few people that had never actually seen it. Oh, uh, Four in a Bed. No. No. Uh, the long, many, many, many series and a number of characters and it, my daughter was in it and Laurie Evans was in it. Um, there's a murder. It starts with a murder. Is it a David Lynch one? Oh, uh, yes. Um, Twin Peaks? Twin Peaks. Yeah. Oh, that I don't was... know if it's David Lynch. Sorry, I'm just sort of throwing names out. But okay. Yeah. That Twin... was a long time ago. Okay, so Twin yeah. Peaks event yeah. was with uh, so my daughter mm-hmm. uh, Roshana mm-hmm. Ruben Mayhew also was an artist here um, do, did a residency at one point in the gallery mm-hmm. but that's the first time I came to it through this event mm-hmm. and I would say that was well enough maybe 17 years ago 16 years ago is that possible? yeah possibly yeah. yeah so she would have been yeah and that was my first discovery and I really remember this place as 
most exciting to me because it felt like a labyrinth mm -hmm. and however they had styled it mm. um, I don't even remember it as I now know the mill in being a several floors I remember moving from one place to another place mm. and then suddenly going up and moving to yet another place it was just incredible mm. and I think now that I look back what, what it will have been is downstairs the gallery the hallway yeah the, what was then called the venue mm -hmm. uh, and the first floor uh, the common room and everything, and maybe it even went beyond. Mm. Maybe it even went to the fifth floor. I don't particularly remember. I just yeah. went into this like incredible space of theatrical delights and discovery. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, and then I did go to a few events mm -hmm. um, here, a few nights, nightclub nights uh, during the fat out time, mm -hmm. and then I also was part of my daughter's project, which was in the gallery where over a week or, or longer, maybe 10 days, she had people sleeping in the gallery, falling asleep. So she was filming us falling asleep, sleeping, like deep sleep, middle of the night, and waking up. Mm, that's interesting. So I slept in the gallery, surrounded by, you know, obviously the glass where people could actually see yeah. uh, me sleeping, or us sleeping, because she was also there at times, mm -hmm. um, of course, to do the filming. Yeah. Did you find it hard to fall asleep knowing that you were being filmed? No. Nah. I sleep really well anywhere, actually. Yeah, it was quite quite exciting, actually, because if I sleep, I just sleep, mm -hmm. and I don't care. I yeah. mean, it's not that exciting. Yeah. I guess. I mean, yeah. I don't know what I was doing, but you know. yeah, that is one of those things that yes, we should sleep, but your body has to sleep as well. There is a choice element in sleeping, but also not because there's a lot of choice element in where I sleep. Yes how yeah. I sleep. There's yeah. definitely a choice in when I sleep because otherwise we wouldn't have such a high thing of health and well-being mm -hmm. because the whole thing of we have to do all these things which are related to being productive, which is very capitalist, mm -hmm. always having to do quantity mm -hmm. and fast and being stressed is mm -hmm. actually quite a symptom of it because mm -hmm. the more stressed I am, the more I do, the more I do, the more valuable. I am or I think I am. Mm -hmm. So actually often we deprive ourselves of, of sleep because we push ourselves. So actually we are exercising a choice mm. of not sleeping because we feel we have to, must do, should do more. Yes, that is true. And it's like you said, it's based on quantity rather than quality. I think um, what I was trying to articulate before with the pandemic and seeing people's active um, the disavowal of the messages they were being told to do the commands that they were being commanded to do and their active refusal of those commands. I think the bigger picture that I feel that was happening there was that people are really waking up to the capitalist, late capitalist, patriarchal, almost totalitarian capitalism that we live under now doesn't really function for our own well-being, for our own good. And yet we were being fed this messages, these messages from authority that, oh, this is for your, your well-being. But we all know that we're deeply entrenched in a system that isn't about our well-being anyway. No, so actually we people don't believe. Mm. Because a lot of information has been information that necessarily isn't the only information. Also the whole the whole sort of coercive power over system is actually based on also teaching children quite early on not to trust people. Mm. Don't trust others. So mistrust in others is actually one of foundational things about creating uh, a, a system where you have a hierarchy mm -hmm. because when you can't trust people you've got to control them you've got mm -hmm. to control them and tell them to be good because you teach people 
to believe that we are born bad. Mm -hmm. So this is getting where it's getting a lot more complex, and I'd love to do more and make a separate yeah. one. But I think on one hand, yes, people have woken up to mm -hmm. this system of um, superiority and supremacy and patriarchy, etc., which serves some through control over others, the power over rather than the power with. And at the same time, it's also the, 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 the very language used you must do this for your own good mm. is a mix of, well, we don't trust you that it is actually for your own good. Yes. Yeah, and at the same time, it speaks to the, how do I not want to be spoken to? Niall, I've not met anybody yet who likes being told what to do mm. unless they have agreed to because they're joining the army. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I, make a, I, have, I give consent to you telling me mm -hmm. uh, or... I'm really exhausted. I go, actually, please don't teach me how to make it. Just tell me mm. the information, whether it's a, it's a dish or something else. I'm tired. Just tell me. I'm giving you permission to tell me. But other than that, um, nobody likes being told what to do. Mm. Yeah. We like being invited and asked and requested. Yes. It's always much easier to, <laughs> to get someone to do something, for want of a better phrase, by having them come to that conclusion that it's the thing to do themselves rather than telling them. Exactly. And the conclusion is because I come to the conclusion that this is useful for me, delightful for me, I'd like to do it, it has an impact on me and others. It might be because actually it'd be nice for you, so therefore I choose to do it. And again, I think where, we, where it's more subtle is to move away. I choose to move away from getting people to do things mm -hmm. because that's still coercive. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if I then want to get you to do something, I want to make you do something, and therefore I use requests, mm -hmm. I'm actually still in the cursive territory, mm -hmm. whereby mm -hmm. can I even go, go away, move away from that, and quite honestly just invite you to do something I'd love you to do, because it would really assist me, mm. it may also assist you. Mm -hmm. mm. Like, the Islington Mill is currently at a very... It's entering into another phase of its existence at the moment. It's coming to the end of a, the long process of having reconstruction and building work done on it and an injection of money that has been used to push the mill forward into the next phase of its existence. How is upwording going to be integrated into this? What is the... Could, is there like a practical example that you could explain to me now about how upwording is going to be integrated into future plans for Islington Mill moving forward into this next phase of its existence. Yeah, and I think also based on what we've already done. So mm. um, we would like to, we will, we will continue to form and nurture all our partnerships, including with funders, in such a way that we always come out of a real conscious decision of engaging in something mm and checking if we wish to, mm -hmm. are prepared to and agree with the criteria that is being asked of us mm. to then deliver to uphold. Mm -hmm. So we see all our relationships as with others, never under or above. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's really with, it's in the partnership, mm. and it's a, it's, it's a conscious choice. Mm. That we've already engaged in. Mm -hmm. we, want to be, we want to make sure that everybody is fear-free. Yeah. when engaging with somebody else. Yeah. So we're neither dictated to or dictate to others. Mm. We don't want to be in an expert position of deciding people's 
um, you know, being juries and judges and panels, we want to make co make decisions with others mm. using criteria that are co-created. Mm -hmm. That everything is actually co-worked out and co-created. That doesn't mean we always all sit together to co-create everything. But what we uh, what we what we do is in our pockets, our tribes, and individually, is work on something and then bring it to others for further exploration. Because actually, the voices together always create more. Yeah. than one it makes it so much richer and deeper so one is the relationships that we build which are always how would we love it to be how would we like to work together co-creating a climate and maintaining that climate mm -hmm. we definitely don't want to have rules and regulations ever imposed onto others mm -hmm. we always have co-created rules yeah. of how we want to be so that's one the other thing is in our dialogues with each other within the team certainly we the four of us would never go, we have to do something, or it must be done, or you have to do it. We're not forcing other people to give up musts and shoulds. Mm. And, and it can take a while to give them up, because actually we've learned that should is a way to get things done. Yeah. It's quite hard to give that up yeah. at times. You know? yeah. So um, the other thing is how to sort of embed it further is that already about three years ago, four years ago, we, start, we, we did the first upwarding presentation to which a number of tenants and members of the team and people from the outside and temporary custodians mm -hmm. and partners and interested parties and strangers mm. came in, and in those two hours took away the basic elements of the, you know, the four or five elements like, mm -hmm. like I mentioned uh, and incorporated them into their lives and into their work to greater or less extent. Some people have fully done that and shared it on. Some people go, yes, I've done a little bit and then I keep forgetting, mm. but I'm aware now. I'm a lot more aware. Mm. So we've repeated those about three or four times and every time new people come in, and that will now increase, is that we we make that a, a very regular space and not not only delivered by me, but to be beginning to be delivered by other people who are part of the team, studio holders, part of the community, so that mm. people get, if you like, um, upskilled. Mm -hmm. So yeah. capacity building is that actually can ripple throughout. Yeah. And we believe it ripples. Yeah. It is interesting. This kind of calls back to something that I spoke with Bill about in the first episode of this series, um, about these are kind of skill sets that are not necessarily open that frequently to artists and people in creative fields because this is kind of from my own personal experience as well there's this kind of feeling around when you are creative or you are an artist that you are your own boss and that is something that is obviously it's it, it's something that can be cherished if it's in the right context because ultimately i think everyone would like to be their own boss but you're certainly not taught the skill set as an artist i don't believe in terms of how to communicate with other people. There is a collaborative spirit to art, but it kind of, it can be messy because they're not, this isn't a skill set that specifically artists are told, but people in general are mm. told either, but also in the kind of world of, of the arts and fine arts in particular, it's always this very individualistic pursuit. So the idea of how to communicate clearly with other people when it's a collaborative process so that everyone is going for the same thing. Yeah, there's that, a lot in there actually, yeah. what you've just said and I think a few things I want to pick up. One is in a way the difficulty of really collaborating, co-creating, wishing to co-design is a departure 
from what we have been and still are to a greater more of a greater and less extent taught which is to be competitive mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the moment you've got the competitive which is look out for yourself mm. there's a lot of people in the business you've got to forge your you know your own da 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 also means that you then don't necessarily share your ideas mm -hmm. because if you share your ideas they're no longer yours so yeah. the whole concept of letting go of ownership of ideas yeah. and at the same time have a uniqueness to your own work. Mm. Um, one of the things which are on the mills just now, yes. scaffolding thing, is yeah. uniquely united, which is a phrase um, I've, I've created a little while back, which we've started using, which is actually how we can be unique and be united and be really generous. Because mm -hmm. we know that if I share the idea, which of course generally doesn't come from, it's totally fresh and totally new, it's always influenced by everything yes. that's come before. Mm -hmm. And we can argue decades and years and millennia before mm -hmm. have led to that moment with everything around. It's not mm -hmm. done in isolation. But maybe taking away a bit of that ownership and looking at the my uniqueness and interpreting that with my particular layers of life. And yet it becomes richer if I share that mm -hmm. out and you can input into that. So I think that's going on. And the other thing is because of that focus and it is capitalist of the eye and what can I get and me and my family, my little tribe, yeah. we have really lost, let's say we're not particularly practiced in thinking we. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to me, my thing, my surrounding, my salary, my studio, my... Uh, and sometimes it's like, and you're a bit annoying in this because now I've got to think about you as well. Yeah. Rather than actually, I really want to think yeah. about you because you and I are greater together. Yeah. And you isn't just the yous that are like me. Mm -hmm. Yous are the yous that I don't even know, mm. will never know and meet. Mm -hmm. And ideally, those who don't share the same views as me. Mm. Because there are multiple views. There's about multifarious thinking. Mm. And that is then moving away from also what we've often practiced, which is where do you sit? Is it this or that? Is it either or? It's very polarized, very binary. There's mm. one way, the better way, the success, the failure, rather than actually there's a number of views. And if we go there, then even the difficult topics in communication, I'm coming back to communication between us, mm -hmm. means we don't need to go into a battle. We don't need to go into a... We don't need to. We can avoid going into any opposition by going... <gasps> Great, there is a different view. Mm, may mm. not sit that well with me at the moment mm -hmm. or ever. I'd like to learn more. I'd like to find out more. What, what, what's in your thinking? Mm. Oh, look, we're actually having a crossover here. We're having a meeting point. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else has another view and another view and another view and another view and they'll always be crossover points. So coming back to the communication, more curious... If I can, if we can begin to practice, especially if I hear something I don't like or doesn't sit with me yet or isn't aligning or I don't understand, that the, let's say, a knee-jerk reaction would go into, say more. Mm. I'm curious to understand more rather than maybe being furious or feeling attacked or challenged and then going into a defensive mm -hmm. and trying to convince you of mine. Mm. because all of that is divisive. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things around communication. Um, and another thing, and I'll add that, is that how can I share something with you in such a way 
that actually you can and want to engage with it mm -hmm. because I'm already at the point of departure of sharing something interested in how you receive and what you have to say about it. Mm -hmm. So basically, now what I'm saying is it all comes back to intention. Yeah. Of mutually, mm -hmm. a mutual something, a mutually agreeable outcome, a mutual, a mutually agreeable solution, a mutually doable something of mutual benefit, of mutual impact. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is, um, okay, I think I'll make this the last question for now. Although we have spoken off microphone about continuing this interview series because there are more elements of, um, like the relationship between upwording and neuro-linguistic programming we had discussed before and you said that you'd quite like to do a full podcast on that, which would be great because it is, in my limited experience with these kind of things, it does sound similar to neuro-linguistic programming, but you said, would you like to say that yourself? You I can say a little bit, which is, yeah, just, yes, I yeah. did do training in neuro-linguistic programming, also mm. called NLP, mm. before I did non-violent communication, and we see, and various other things, systems, thinking systems theories, mm. and other approaches, choice theories, etc. Et and I would say that there's a, there's some stuff in within NLP that is highly useful in mm. terms of us understanding where we're limiting, like a nominalization, mm. like a relationship mm -hmm. and what's the problem with my relationship or to going and how I'm actually relating yeah. taking it into movement there's quite a lot linguistically in there that's useful the issue with NLP I find is that I think sadly a lot of people are taking it as something that if you train in NLP you are superior in some way mm. that's the bit of I think an interpretation of the ethos that doesn't require to be there at all it because then it also becomes, it can become very easily coercive and manipulative. Yeah. And it, we, we notice, and that's why there's been such a, a reaction to, against mm -hmm. NLP. Whereas when actually used in a no coercive way at all, and I think the, the, the title is a problem, Neuro-Linguistic Programming, would have been maybe more useful to call it Neuro-Linguistic Repatterning, mm -hmm. which meaning when there's patterns that have yeah. kicked in that are not helpful to me, to you and us. Mm. that we can actually repattern that so things are not fixed mm. uh, yes love to talk more about that yeah we'll definitely course. do another full podcast on that because that is fascinating to me and I'm sure that there are other threads to do with upwording that we'll cover in future podcasts but I'll just end it now with a question which I think is fairly straightforward but also might be a really massive question <laughs> but we're living in an era now where discourse is more prevalent than ever and people have much more means of interacting verbally with each other than we ever have in the past. Yet it feels to me, especially through media like social media, that the quality of our discourse is rapidly dwindling. I mean, would you agree with that, though? Would you agree that we are living in a more discourse, discursive age, but also perhaps is our level of how to discuss things with people, specifically people who have a very different view of things to us is getting worse I wouldn't say it's getting necessarily worse I think that which has been has got louder okay it is much quicker to give a comment especially as it can be done behind a, a screen yeah because we're being brought up and this is this is just my how, how I choose to see it because a lot of the upbringing is still to label Mm -hmm. to evaluate, mm -hmm. to call something right or wrong or good or bad, I can very quickly 
make a statement or a judgment. And that's one other area in upwording is around judgments, making judgments rather than remaining descriptive. Yeah. So I'll pass judgment because I'm taught to pass judgment. I'm also taught not to trust. I've got to read between the lines. What do you really mean? Mm. There's a lot of analysis and interpretation that is really unhelpful in connection mm. because it is actually about I'm going to pass judgment and I'm already dividing. Mm. Yeah, And I put myself in a superior position. Anyway, I think this is just something that we, we haven't really at the moment got, I'd say... We're not very practiced mm -hmm. in communicating in order to find connection within communication. Yeah. For, for, to do that wants to be a letting go of passing judgment, a letting go of analysis, and actually really being curious in that. The pub talk, have you heard the latest, isn't it bad? And mm -hmm. they're not actually going rigorously into anything. and passing judgment on who is to blame mm. is really problematic because it's who is to blame. Do you agree with this or that? Mm. Where do you stand? So I think there is a, 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 um, a time ahead where it's almost like un really unlearning. Mm -hmm. In a book recently I heard a reference to wouldn't it be great to have a school of unlearning? Mm. And I think we really want to do that. We are, I think it's already happening, mm -hmm. unlearning certain things in order to learn a fresh mm. way of engaging with what one another that is curious that mm -hmm. is about uh, having a resourceful position to continue to listen to you when you say something that I find abhorrent because clearly you believe in it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or that person believes in it they wouldn't say it if they didn't believe in it as much as what I'm putting forward I believe in mm. Now, if I can then stay away from going, but mine is better than yours, mm. well, of course, you're going, well, my opinion is better than yours, we can avoid that battle mm. of, no, mine's better, no, yours is better, no, mine is better. Um, so there is, there is a lot to learn. I think upwording is an absolute crucial fibre and element in doing that because we can undo those elements of language and mm -hmm. polarisations and judgments and find new ways of communicating in a way that we can remain in what Charles and I call a crucial, critical conversation, mm -hmm. which is really crucial to have now on various topics, yes. where we want to find a connection, not a division, because that is used by those Absolutely. in the world, yeah. the Trumps, mm -hmm. in order to keep people apart and controlled. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's an excellent answer to... The question I had there which yeah it could be I think yeah it is basically I feel like sometimes social media can be engineered with those tactics in mind to create division rather than communication rather than true understanding and, un and some kind of unity not necessarily of ideas of or of outlook but some kind of just unifying factor that we're human beings who can still communicate with each other and um, yeah okay I'm going to end it there for now, but I'm looking forward to continuing these conversations in future. Um, and is there anything you'd like to say to wrap up? I really look forward to exploring more in detail because now my head has been feel mm. really inspired and I want to say more on all kinds of things. And I think uh, it is worth taking the time for us as people, mm -hmm. taking more time, slowing down and actually really exploring the, these conversations and what are the elements that we can add and how can we actually really look forward to something which at the moment is a mess mm. and sometimes it's it feels like it, what it will get really really bad before actually you can sort of clear the ground and start again and grow new things 
the seeds have been sown, the shoots are growing, the little, you know, seedlings. I think mm. it's there. There's a hunger there for a fresh way of being. Mm. It also requires to choose to let go of things and choose to refuse to uphold inadvertently mm. systems that no longer serve us. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Mm.